Well, good morning. Happy New Year. I'm sure most of us are glad to see 2020 in our rearview mirror. <laughs> I pray that we'll be faithful in all that God has for, for us in 2021. Um, a New Year's tradition for many people is making resolutions, right? Resolving to change some aspect of their lives. Many people are inspired to make changes by reading biographies about people. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of us have read biographies and, and thought to ourselves, I'd love to be more like that person. Stories of sports heroes, military figures, successful business people, national leaders, people brought back from the brink of disaster, common people who have made huge impact uh, on the world around them. All these biographies can really inspire us. As, as Christians, we, we frequently read biographies about pastors, evangelists, or theologians that reshape the way we think about our lives and they inspire us to live more like them. So when John Schubert suggested <laughs> that I preach from Acts 13, I thought to myself, man, what better opportunity to inspire people to be more thoughtful about missions, to be mission-minded, if you will, than to preach from the first chapter of Paul's missionary journey. I mean, think about it, right? What would be better to inspire us about missions than to read about the first missionary? So as a leader in our church, I'd love us to be more thoughtful, more intentional, more enthusiastic about global missions. And I thought this passage of Luke's biography of Paul, the world's first missionary, would inspire us to be more mission-minded. And just think about it, Acts 13 is this, is this wonderful chapter, right? Paul and Barnabas and John, Mark, sail off from uh, Syria. They end up on Cyprus, and they preach the gospel on the east part of the island. And then they go to the west part of the island, where the pagan governor there wants to hear the word of the Lord. And so they gather with this governor, and there's this evil sorcerer there, Elmas, right? And he wants to keep the governor from hearing the gospel. And so Paul puts a curse on him, right? Strikes him blind. And the governor sees the miracle, and he hears the gospel, and he accepts the gospel. I mean, that's a pretty amazing story. And then Mark deserts him, and, and, which is a story in and of itself. And Paul and Barnabas move on to a place where the whole town gathers to hear Paul preach after he's just given one little sermon in the synagogue, and that's where they have their first encounter with Jewish leaders that are jealous about Paul, and they, and they want to run Barnabas and Paul from the region. And after they've made a small group of converts, they move on to the next town, and more preaching, and more persecution, and more people coming to Christ. It's, I mean, it's such an amazing story. Who wouldn't be more thoughtful, more mission-minded from a story like that? But what struck me <laughs> as I was reading these verses was the first few verses of chapter 13 where Luke says that Paul and Barnabas were, were sent. They were sent. They didn't just go. They were actually sent by the Holy Spirit, it says, but they were also sent by a church in which the Holy Spirit was active. They didn't have Paul's biography to inspire them. 
it hadn't happened yet. You see, before there was spirit-sent missionaries, there was a spirit-inspired church that sent them. And so I thought, rather than inspire our church to be mission-minded by talking about Paul, maybe we should talk about that first mission-minded church instead. Makes sense, right? Before there was a missionary to be sent, there was a church to send them, and that means that was a mission-minded church. So I think it would be beneficial to look at their example and what motivated them, and maybe it would inspire us to be more mission-minded ourselves. So, so today we're going to look at the biography of the church at Antioch. This church actually receives very little attention in the book of Acts, only 15 verses compared to 15 chapters of Paul's journeys. Uh, but they're really dense verses that paint a beautiful picture of the first sending church. So we're going to look at characteristics of God's first mission-minded church, as Luke details them. And then I want you to notice, as we're going through this, one overarching theme. And you might want to write this down. This church had a spirit-led desire to see more disciples of Christ. This church had a spirit-led desire to see more disciples of Christ. We're going to come back to that. So by way of introduction, what do we know about Antioch? Well, first it was in Syria, north of Jerusalem, about 300 miles, and inland from the Mediterranean Sea, about 30 miles. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had about half a million people. And it was a town that was at crossroads of trade routes. So it was populated by people from all parts of the Roman world and beyond who had come there to trade and make their fortunes. It had a really thriving Jewish population, descendants who'd fled the persecution by the Greeks in Jerusalem in 200 BC. But the majority of the people there were pagan Gentiles from many nations who worshiped all sorts of gods. The city was referred to as the abode of the gods due to the number of Greek deities that were worshiped there. So that's the town. What about the, what about the church? So Luke tells us a great deal about the church in Antioch in these few verses. Um, so we're going to learn uh, more about the church, and we're going to see these six spirit-inspired characteristics of the church um, that desire to see more disciples of Christ. So our first characteristic was the people of the church were active in sovereignly guided personal evangelism. Sovereignly guided personal evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, by sovereignly guided, I mean the Christians in Antioch were intentional to share the gospel one-on-one, face-to-face, with people in the sphere of influence that God had placed them in through persecution. God had placed them there through persecution. So let's look at, at verse 19. And it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews. This is, a, this is a repeat of Luke's statement at the end of his account of the stoning of uh, Stephen in Acts 6 through 8. Recall that um, Stephen, this prominent man in the early church, was charged by the Jewish leadership with blasphemy against Moses and the law. And the Jewish leaders stone him to death with Paul, Saul, 
uh, himself standing there. And so Luke ends that account by saying this, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So just as we just saw in chapter 11, some of these people ended up in Phoenicia and Cyprus and in Antioch. So these displaced, newly converted Jewish Christians would have moved into Jewish communities, right? Places where they would have been welcome. And as they joined the community, uh, verse 19 says they were sharing the gospel specifically with their Jewish neighbors. And you can just picture it, right? Jewish Christians from Jerusalem moving into a new neighborhood, shopping in the market. Um, Somebody would walk up to them and say, uh, hey, you're new to Antioch, aren't you? And they'd say, yeah. They'd say, where are you from? I'm from Jerusalem. Jerusalem? That's 300 miles south of here. What brings you to Jerusalem? Well, let me tell you. There's this carpenter from Nazareth. And the story goes on. Right? So face to face, one by one, person by person, the gospel went out in these Jewish communities in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And specifically in Antioch, now, we also read that personal evangelism didn't just happen in the Jewish community. We see in verses 20 and 21 a larger audience for the gospel message as persecuted Christians are now in a city that's predominantly pagan. It says uh, in 11, 20, and 21, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed Turn to the Lord. Now, no one but God <laughs> had a plan to send people to these places to share the gospel. There was no vocational missionaries sent to Antioch. There was no formal church planners, no evangelistic sermons like Peter gave in Jerusalem, the start of the church. There was no door-to-door campaigns, no tracts to hand out, no organized outreach. There weren't any miracles, no healings, no demons cast out to verify uh, the message of these people. This church was birthed by people who just faithfully shared the gospel with their neighbors where God had sovereignly placed them through persecution, mind you. So that first spirit-inspired character trait of this first sending church was its participation in sovereignly guided personal evangelistic opportunities. The second activity or characteristic we see this church was their unbiased cross-cultural engagement. Unbiased cross-cultural engagement. What do I mean by that? Well, the Christians who brought the gospel to Antioch were inclusive about who they shared the gospel with. Let's just look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on coming to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So to clarify here, when Luke refers to Hellenists, he's referring to uh, Gentile pagans with little or no familiarity with Jewish religious tradition. And this was pretty radical. This was really radical. Um, and we're going, to talk, we're going to talk about how radical that is in just a few minutes. Here we go. Yeah, this was radical. Orthodox Jews didn't engage 
with pagan Christians. It just, it just didn't happen. They were considered unclean, right? Yet we're, here we see these persecuted Jewish Christians from Jerusalem engaging not only with their brother Jews in Antioch, but also with these pagan Gentiles. And so the notion of a Jewish Christian sharing the gospel with a pagan was already causing some turmoil in the church in Jerusalem, mind you, basically at the same time, a church not so biased about the culture around them. You see, in Jerusalem at the same time, some of the new Jewish converts to Christianity thought the gospel had been meant just for the Jews. <laughs> and Jewish law still prohibited contact with Gentiles. In Acts 11, the same chapter where we're seeing the gospel openly shared between Jewish believers and Gentile non-believers in Antioch, Paul had explained his actions, had to explain his actions to the leaders in the church in Jerusalem after he had just entered the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And he actually ate with him. <laughs> that was unimaginable for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile and eat with him. And yet this bold group of new believers in Antioch reached out to their neighbors, Jews and non-Jews, with no apparent cultural exclusion. And the proof that God was working through them as they faithfully evangelized was the fruit of their efforts. It says in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so we know they had a willingness to reach out to all the people. And that willingness to reach out all the people impacted their entire church as it grew. And we see that, and we look at um, chapter 13, verse 1, where it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menachem, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We know Barnabas and Saul, right? They're Jews from... Um, Cyprus and Tarsus, but it's significant that Luke describes these three other men here, and he never describes them again. Luke is describing in detail the cross-cultural nature of this leadership because Simeon was likely a dark-skinned man, probably from North Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, also North Africa. Uh, Menachem, who was probably the only Judean Jew in the group, is believed to be the foster brother of Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded, and who was complicit to have Jesus killed. This is a leader in the church at Antioch. Talk about diversity in the church. So in Antioch, this mission-minded church was unbiased in its cross-cultural engagement. All were welcome in this church. A third spirit-led characteristic we see in this mission-minded church is replicating Christ-centered discipleship. Replicating Christ-centered discipleship. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 26 if you, if you have your Bibles open. These verses say, The report of this, that is, a large number of Gentile converts, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So there's a, there's a bit of a problem going on in the church of Antioch, especially if you're the leadership in Jerusalem. Um, there's this rapidly growing group of Gentile believers between the faithful personal evangelism and the unbiased outreach. And the church of Jerusalem is a little concerned that there's so many Gentile believers that they're hearing these reports of. We, you know, we just talked about the struggle with Peter and Cornelius. And so they send Barnabas, who's from that area, to go see what's going on. And so Barnabas arrives and he sees that the report is true. And while he's there, he began to exhort and disciple the new converts to follow Christ. Or as it says here, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And it says, a great many people were added to the number. Number of what? A number of probably previously pagan Gentiles were now Christians. And so as Barnabas is encouraging these faithful Antioch Christians to follow Christ, they're obviously continuing to share with their neighbors, and in doing so, more people come to know Christ. That's what I mean by replicating Christ-centered discipleship. This church has grown so fast that Barnabas has to go get Saul. He has to go get more help to teach and disciple this church. And there's something really interesting to note in verse 26 that tells us about the discipleship in the church. It says, and, the, and, the Antioch, uh, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And that might seem like a real trivial kind of statement. It's kind of like trivial pursuit. What was the first city where, where Christians were first called Christians? Um, but it's very significant in that Christ's followers throughout the, the New Testament, Testament never referred to themselves as Christians. They never called themselves that. Um, it was a name that was applied to them by outsiders, somewhat sarcastically, by non-believers for the first time in Antioch. Christian means little Christ, or the party of Christ. And the significance of that verse is that there appeared to be a growing, noticeable group of people who were no longer identified as Jewish or Gentile, ethnically or religiously. And because they were so noticeable, they had to be identified by their own name by the others in, in the community. So what exactly was it that made them unique and different that was deserving a new name? Well, we can probably only guess, but one thing that might be was that converted Jews were no longer worshiping in the synagogue and converted Gentiles were no longer going to the pagan temples. And that would have been very noticeable in that town. They were worshiping this, this person called Jesus all together, Jews and Gentiles. Previous pagans and orth, previous Orthodox Jews were all worshiping this guy called Christ. And, and maybe, it was their, maybe it was just their unprejudiced evangelism that people picked up on. You know, maybe it was the unity that they had in spite of their cultural differences. Maybe non-believers saw as more and more people were discipled that there was a group of people whose lives were unique. These Christians were giving to the poor. They were forgiving people who had wronged them. Husbands were loving their wives in a really unique way. Prostitutes and thieves abandoned their trades. And when people would ask them what they would happen, they'd say, oh, let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. So regardless 
of how this was presented, the fruit of the discipleship was more and more people being identified with Christ. They were Christ's disciples. And so another characteristic of the spirit-led church was replicating Christ-centered discipleship. A fourth characteristic we see was its selfless relief ministries. Selfless relief ministries. We're going to look at uh, uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. And it says, now in, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers, brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So at, at face value, this opportunity for the church to supply some relief in a time of crisis outside of it being prophetic uh, doesn't seem particularly noteworthy. Um, but Luke put it here for a particular reason, uh, to show the remarkable selflessness of this church, particularly poor, for brothers who lived in a different town. First, Luke makes a, a, a point to note that the, the famine actually hadn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, it had been prophesied. It says that Agabus had been foretold by the Spirit, and Luke makes a note that the famine actually happened later in the days of Claudius. And so this church at Antioch was making contributions toward relief for a disaster that hadn't even happened yet. And second, since there really wasn't a current disaster, there really wasn't a request. Agabus had just prophesied, hey, there's going to be a famine. He didn't say, how would you like to help the brothers in Jerusalem? He just showed up like many prophets did from Jerusalem to share prophecies in Antioch. So the church had decided to take up a collection unsolicited. Third, it says the famine would impact the whole world. And unless Antioch is unique, it's actually part of the same world that Jerusalem was in. And they too would experience the famine if it affected the whole world. And yet this, this church was willing to give, even though they weren't really sure how the famine was going to affect their, their own condition. So Luke includes this little story to communicate the particular selfless radical love that is characterized in the church at Antioch. Unrequested and with little thought of their own well-being, the entire church gave as much as they could, shared what God had blessed them with, and, and sent it to a church that was ethnically and culturally different than them and was quite a distance away. And imagine the impact that this would have had on the church in Jerusalem, their mother church. This is a church that was very concerned about all the Gentile believers being in this church in Antioch. Imagine how, how that would have um, encouraged the church in Jerusalem to actually see Christ working in these people to be so selfless to people who were really unlike them in so many ways. And so this church was characterized by selfless relief ministry. Another characteristic of this mission-minded church was its visionary, spirit-led leadership. Visionary, spirit-led leadership. Um, 
By that I mean that the leadership in Antioch wanted to see what was next for their church and it was depending on God through the Holy Spirit for direction. And it says uh, in 13 verses 2 and 3, it says, while they, that's the leaders of the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called him. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the leaders in the church in Antioch were fasting and praying, and they must have been doing that for a reason. We see throughout scripture when people fast and pray, they're, they're frequently looking for wisdom, they're looking for direction, they're looking for an answer to a question that concerns them. And we know good leaders are all visionaries. They, they wanna know what the next step is. And so maybe it's wrong to guess, but I think we can guess what the next question on their mind was. Uh, the question is the same question a lot of church leaders ask frequently in prayer. What's next for our church? What are we gonna do next? We're growing these disciples. We're seeing Gentile pagans come to know Christ. We're, we're, we're known across the city as Christ followers. What's, what's next for our church? And this question could be answered through pragmatic human thought and ideas where man gets all the glory or can be answered by God. And these leaders were asking God to point them his way, the way he'd like them to go. And the answer came that two men were to be sent to spread the gospel throughout the world. And so this mission-minded church was led by leaders who were visionaries and, and dependent on the direction of the Holy Spirit. The last characteristic we're going to look at at this church was uh, they were engaging in intentional and sacrificial church planting. Intentional and sacrificial church planting. Now, you all know that the word missionary isn't found in the Bible. It's a relatively modern word. And in its most basic sense, it denotes people who fulfill the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. They're missionaries, they fill out the Great Commission. And if you've, you've missed the point of this uh, discussion so far, the point is, is that before the church in Antioch sent people globally, they were already faithful, faithfully fulfilling the Great Commission right where they were. <laughs> they were making disciples right where they were, in the nations around them, right where they were. They were evangelizing. They were reaching out cross-culturally. They were growing disciples. They were selfless. They were spirit-led. God was now just asking them to take it on the road. They were already being faithful. See, where their church was born out of people coming to Antioch by God-ordained circumstances, that is, persecuted Jews moving from Jerusalem to Antioch, this church was directed by God to actually send people from their church. This wasn't God causing disaster in the church in Antioch that scattered Christians. This was a church that was intentionally sending people. Um, and they were intentionally sending people out to evangelize and disciple and hopefully start another church, hopefully just like their church. And there was going to be some sacrifice to it. If you look at, uh, look at the men that they're going to send, I'm, I'm sure there was going to be prayer and financial support for their global church planners, but uh, 
we notice another type of sacrifice here. They were, they were going to send man who had made a huge impact on their church, undeniably their most influential leaders. Barnabas, who was the encourager, who was probably instrumental in taking this large group of immature uh, Gentile uh, Christians and Jews in Antioch, as we saw earlier, and discipling them in a, in a mature church. And we see Saul, this evangelist, who'd been teaching there for a whole year. This church was willing to sacrifice their leaders, people who had proved themselves in service, people who were likely um, to see their church grow larger if these leaders stayed and continued to disciple. But they were going to intentionally send them away <laughs> to encourage and disciple and teach and shepherd new churches. That's pretty amazing to think about. Think about it. Bethlehem Baptist sending out John Piper to be a missionary. Grace Community Church sending out John MacArthur to be a missionary. What kind of sacrifice is that? How about John Schubert? <laughs> Being sent. <laughs> Who better to send than to build a healthy church full of Christ-following disciples? So this church was engaged in intentional and sacrificial church planning. So there's six characteristics of this church, this amazing church, this first mission-minded church. And so what was the fruit of this? Well, we could look at the rest of Acts and say, well, churches, of course. I mean, all we got to do is look through Paul's journey, and we see churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica. Uh, we know of churches that were planted throughout uh, southern Galatia. There was churches planted all over the place. And you can imagine, if you look at this church in Antioch, you think, that's a church worth planting, right? That's a church worth sending people out and making new churches. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal, and the ultimate desire of this church in Antioch was to make more disciples of Christ. Faithful, Christ-worshiping disciples. You know, John Piper says that missions exists because worship doesn't. And this church was going to send out people to make more disciples, more Christ worshipers. Continue to carry out this great commission to see more disciples wherever God sent them. So that's, that's the definition of mission-mindedness in and of itself. So I want to challenge us today as we look at this church in Antioch. Our mission statement here says, Sun Valley Church exists. You've got, you guys have heard this. Over and over. It says, Sun Valley Church exists to glorify God by creating an authentic Christian community that's gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded. Sounds a bit like Antioch, doesn't it? A group of gospel-centered people who want to see more and more disciples of Christ. And so the challenge is, compared to Antioch, how would we rate both personally and corporately in our own mission-mindedness. Do we want to fulfill the Great Commission and work toward making more disciples of Christ? Are we evangelistic 
in the places where God's put us? Do we reach out cross-culturally in a city that undoubtedly is cross-cultural and diverse? Are we disciple makers? Are we selfless? Are we willing to do the things not only here where God has put us, but are we willing to support those who will faithfully go overseas and do it? So if you guys need an idea for a New Year's resolution, <laughs> we've just looked at this great biography of this church. And, and I'd ask us to pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, would inspire us to be more mission-minded. And I would love to see, as a leader in this church, I would love to see, as we become more desirous to see more disciples of Christ, more worshipers of Christ, I'd love to see what would happen to our church what happened to our, to our city, and, and ultimately, what would happen to our world as we send people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have a desire to see all tribes, tongues, nations, people worship you across the globe. And Lord, as we grow... Um, in our knowledge of Christ, and the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Father, I pray that we would continue to grow in this desire uh, to see more people come to Christ, more worshipers of Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would move us, that it would just be second nature for us to look at a person and say, is that a potential? disciple of Christ and should I open my mouth and share regardless of who they are and Lord I would pray that as that desire through your Holy Spirit grows in our church Lord I pray that you would desire us to see that um, throughout the world and that we would send and support and pray for missionaries and it's in Christ's name we pray